the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And on today's folk show, we are doing Memorable Mentors, another installment. This week, we're looking at Ludwig von Mises. Welcome, Ed. Oh, Ron. My von head is spinning. Yes, I hear you. <laughs> I'm going to need your German accent here for some of this stuff. But uh, <laughs> Get out your best bulk Carter voice. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, I want it done right. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we, we took a look at the uh, e-book put out by the Foundation of Economic or Foundation for Economic Education, the Essential Ludwig von Mises, and you can get this for free, folks, and we've got the link up on our show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com, and we'll certainly post it on the show notes, but uh, Ed, I really enjoyed it. It was five essays from various sources, and uh, I, I thought they were really well done. Yeah, they really are, and I'm, I'm really enjoying this series of books that the Foundation for Economic Education has has put out. It, you know, and I'm saying my head is spinning, but you know, von Mises, his book Human Action is is what like 700 pages or something. Nine hundred, so, yeah, yeah, okay. So to 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 distill <laughs> some of his thinking down a little bit into into a book that you can comfortably read, I would say what in three to four hours total. Yeah, it's about a hundred pages, I guess, roughly. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were to have the book form of it, I've, I read the ebook, obviously, but. But I think it's it's really helpful to 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 condense some of the, these ideas down because let's face it, you and I are well, you're much more voracious than I am. But just to 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 even get through human action is a chore and would take weeks. It, and this it did. <laughs> this this at least gives you a, a a flavor for it, and at the same time, you 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 get your mind thinking about different things, and that's why that my head is more spinning, not necessarily from. Mon, von Mises's work, but w- from what the ideas that he's put into my head and how they are so practically applicable today, even though mo- all of this stuff was written at least 50 years ago. Yeah. And what I really appreciated too, Ed, was, you know, he's, von Mises earned his reputation on, on, on money, the Austrian theory of money and the Austrian theory of credit and, and business cycles. And yet these essays that they put together in this book were more political in nature. And I really appreciated that because I think the, the monetary aspect is kind of the least interesting of his work. 
you know, uh-huh. on some levels. So I, yep. <laughs> I yep. was happy to yep. see that, but, um, he did yes. have a funny line about that, though, right? I mean, he said to, said to his prospective wife, he says, I write about money, but I'll never have any. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you want a rich man, don't marry me. <laughs> I'm not interested in earning money. <laughs> kind of like a Karl Marx. Uh, yeah, also, in a way. He was a confirmed bachelor. He didn't get married until he was like 50-something. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, but that's what he told her. But interesting guy. He was born in 1881 in Lemberg which is uh, 350 miles east of Vienna. Today, it's part of the Ukraine. Um, he was the oldest of three sons. Um, we'll talk about one of his younger brothers, Ed Richard, kind of interesting. But obviously, he came from a prestigious Jewish family. Um, and his father was a construction engineer. And hmm. he was the one that earned the title Bonn uh, for his work on the Austrian railroads in Vienna. Uh, Vaughn is, I guess, similar to Great Britain's Sir, like Sir Richard yes. Branson, mm-hmm. same type of title. Right. But, Ed, it's inherited by all the male and by unmarried female descendants. Huh, interesting. They can use it, too. I did not realize that. Um, but that's how that's how he got it. Now, he dropped it, you know, when he immigrated to the U.S. He, he basically dropped it, and, and, and so did Hayek. Hayek dropped mm-hmm. it when he... Uh, went to the London School of Economics. Um, but he entered the University of Vienna at the turn of the century, and he read Karl Munger, uh, Karl Menger, I'm sorry, and he was, of course, one of the three economists who came up with the subjective theory of value, you know, the right. so-called marginalist revolution. So Menger was one of his teachers. Uh, in 1906, at the age of 25, he earned his doctorate of laws, and he couldn't get a teaching job, though, so he became the chief economist at the Vienna Chamber of Commerce. And the reason he couldn't get uh, appointed, even after he published his first book, by the way, in 1912, The Theory of Money and Credit, it kind of put him on the map because it challenged, at the time, Irving Fisher's uh, quantity theory of money. Um, and, of course, Irving Fisher was famous economist here in the United States. He's the guy, Ed, who famously said... Um, you know, the stock market, you know, has not reached its plateau or something. And, you know, in October 1929, we, right, we've, got, right. we've got one of his quotes in the Experts Speak episode that we did, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he got a teaching job at University of Vienna, Mises did, but it was only part time. And he was failed. Uh, um, he failed to be appointed for three reasons. One, he was Jewish. Two, he was a staunch advocate of laissez-faire. And three, he was personally dogmatic and intransigent. <laughs> <laughs> so he had that reputation. and mm, um, I like him already. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's some really, really good <laughs> stories about it. Um, but his younger brother, interestingly enough, Richard, who got a PhD in mathematics, and, and von Mises always thought that he would be, you know, outdone by his brother, um, his brother got into aircraft design and uh, they both fought in the uh, Great War for Austria mm-hmm. and uh, von Mises was an artillery officer at the Eastern Front <laughs> by the way um, wow. and he was decorated for bravery three times and uh, in 1934 he left Vienna he went to the University of Geneva but in 1938 uh, the Nazis stormed his uh, apartment in Vienna 
where he had stored a lot of his writings and personal effects and things like that. And the Nazis cleaned it out, took 38 cases, and that it wasn't discovered until the 1990s when Richard Ebling, a professor at Hillsdale College, discovered uh, these files in, in the KGB. Once the KGB oh my gosh, they still had them. Wow. Had them. So 10,000 papers. Mises, his whole life until he passed away, thought that the, the Nazis destroyed them. They didn't. They had them somewhere. And when the Russians came in, you know, to liberate uh, after they won the war, um, they, they collected these papers and took them back. And they didn't mm. destroy them, saved them. And Ebeling went through them. He's produced some books about it. One is Austrian Economics and Public Policy. And, but then he's got another one specifically, I think, that kind of uh, uncovers some of these lost writings of, of von Mises. And, of course, Interesting. Um, Mises' personal library resides at the uh, Hillsdale College in, uh, yep. in Michigan. Now, uh, now I have the image of the, the end of uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know, the <laughs> warehouse. Right, <laughs> von Mises's writings. Oh wow! Yeah, pretty interesting. So. And then, of course, he immigrated to the United States uh, to New York City in August of 1940. His brother was already at Harvard, and his brother um, went on to become a aeronautics engineer, and um, you know did some famous uh, work on aircraft design, things like that. But. Uh, Von Mises was never able to get a full-time teaching position, although he was offered a couple, one from UCLA, which he turned down. He didn't want to come to California. Um, so, but uh, really interesting guy. I mean, he, uh, he ran into Peter Drucker, and Peter Drucker knew him growing up because Drucker was from Vienna. And oh, okay. Drucker, um, but then, of course, they, I think they were both at the New York uh, University at the same time, NYU. And Drucker said he was the most depressing person I ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really funny because Murray Rothbard disagreed and said, oh, no, uh, you know, I took his private seminar and he was a joy and inspiration. But um, his wife, Margaret, said, uh, Margaret said uh, he wasn't gentle. He had, you know, he had a will of iron and a mind of it like a steel blade, but he could be unbelievably stubborn. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I I know that he and he and Ayn Rand had some had some fun fun conversations. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, and I don't know much of that story. If he got into her circle and then fell out, or if he ever got into her circle at all. Do you, can you well, recall that? Well, yeah, he you know he praised her work for a while, but then and she generally looked at him with favor. But then, being the personalities that they are, they. They had some disagreements, I think, mostly over the moral basis of capitalism, which you could get. Because I think, I think Mises, I think he's, he, he brought up Jewish. I think he probably did believe in God. I don't, you know, there's no, nothing that I have said that, that he would be an atheist. Maybe he was, though. I don't know. Yeah, no, nothing I could find either that, 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 that he was an atheist. In fact, somewhere I read that he's a dualist, you know, mm. and he, he kind of, he's got that whole, you know, material, spiritual Right. Um, attitude. And I think that kind of frames some of his thinking around praxeology and human action and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. He did get in an argument. His brother, Richard, was uh, in the so-called Vienna circle uh, with philosophers like, you know, Ludwig Wittgenstein and Karl Popper. And these folks favored logical positivism, 
<laughs> using oh, yeah. empirical evidence to test theories, and Mises completely rejected that, uh, called it pure deductive reasoning. In fact, Murray Rothbard uh, once asked Mises about what he thought of his brother Richard's book, Positivism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Mises said, I disagreed with that book from the first sentence until the last. <laughs> <laughs> and Murray said it was just, it was said in a tone that there was no follow up. You, you, yeah, you didn't, didn't, didn't need to go any more than that. Just disagreed with everything. Okay. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Of course, you know, and I've used that phrase, and I think we've talked about it on the show. I, I, I think that there's there's a lot of logical positivism, which my spin on it, and it's probably not exactly right, but it's it's the application of mathematics and and precision and science to stuff that's not scientific. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I it, just because it's numbers, and I think that that's that's you know the big thing in accounting, right? Is like there's lots of numbers everywhere, yep. But he, it ain't science. <laughs> he, he constantly railed against the uh, you know comparing the physical sciences to the social sciences, and he thought that you know economics was obviously part of the social science, and there was just no no grounds for empiricism or or the testing of theories because it just didn't lend itself to, you know, laboratory experiments. I mean, humans aren't like that. Um, there's a great story in the early 1920s in Austria, you know, they were, they were that, that country was also resorting to hyperinflation like Germany. Hayek actually recalled that his salary at one point was 5,000 Kronen per month. And this was, um, you know, and then, in, and then a couple months later it moved to 15,000 and then by, uh, <laughs> You know, by the middle of next year, it was like one million. This is per month. Um, And so the League of Nations Commission, um, the League of Nations, I'm sorry, sent a commission to Vienna along with some Austrian government workers, and they paid a visit to Mises. And he thought he was going to get named, you know, like Secretary of Treasury or whatever the equivalent was. Uh, He didn't. But they asked him, you know, we'd like to talk to you and advise us how to get, you know, what to do about this hyperinflation and he told them, well, gentlemen, meet me at this building at midnight, and uh, I'll tell you. And so they did, and it, uh, he said, now, hear that noise? And you could hear these big machines in the background. <laughs> he said, turn it off. And, of course, it was the building where the government turning office was. And, and they did, and supposedly the, uh, the hyperinflation of Austria ended uh, after mm-hmm. that meeting. Um, I'm, I'm not well-versed in that history as much, but I thought that was a... I thought that was a pretty amusing story. Yeah, yeah, no good stuff. Well, when we get back from our break, Ron, we'll talk, we'll dive in a little bit specifically to the work that's in the little fee book there, The Essential Ludwig von Mises. And we'll open up and we'll talk about the, the first essay, which actually is a speech called Liberty and Property. But first, we want to remind you that you can get my, uh, you can get Ron or me at, Veris, at uh, asktsoe at verisage.com. Uh, you can also look at our show notes on thesoulofenterprise.com as well as previews of upcoming shows. And also a listing of all of the episodes that we've ever done is out there in our show archive. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. 
Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Today we are speaking about the work of Ludwig von Mises, specifically a small little book that was put out by the Foundation for Economic Education called The Essential Ludwig von Mises. And Ron, I want to talk about the the first essay, which is really a speech that was given to the, I think it's the ninth meeting of the Mount Perlerin Society. Right. Which the, Now the Mount Perlerin Society, help me on that, that was, that, that was a, a group of really smart people. Right, yep. most mostly the 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 people who consider themselves economists uh, from both, I guess the the subjective theory of value school, but also the Chicago school as well, right? Yeah, I think it was libertarian and free uh-huh. market thinkers. Hayek put it together, and I think it was formed in forty seven. Okay, forty six. Some it, no, it was a year after because uh, FEE is older. FEE okay. was founded in 46 by Leonard Reed and Pellerin was founded by Hayek in 47. And they named it Pellerin because I think that's the first uh, meeting location where their right. first meeting was. And of course, Hayek is, and we'll deal with him on another episode, but he, he was the student of von Mises. But right. so let, talk a little bit about the speech. And there's a couple of quotes in it that really just jump out at me because they just resonated really well with some of the stuff that you and I have talked about on this show a number of occasions. And I really like the way that he put some of this stuff. And one is this, that the, this is a quote here, the characteristic feature of capitalism that distinguishes it from pre-capitalist methods of production was its new principle of marketing. I can see yes. where our friend Peter Drucker would like that, right? Yes, right? and Tim Williams. <laughs> yeah, right. Capitalism is not simply mass production, but mass production to satisfy the needs of the masses. Right. And I think that's a great insight that it's it's not just about production. It's about production that has a purpose, that has the satisfaction of the customer in mind. He says the market process is a daily repeatable plebiscite and it injects it oh, I'm sorry, it ejects inevitability from the ranks of the profitable people who do not employ their property according to the orders given by the public, right? So he he really makes this great distinction um, and and talks about how important markets are. He says there is under capitalism one way to wealth to serve the customers better, cheaper than other people do. Love that. 
Yep, I do too. And what I also found interesting, Ed, is when he gave the historical setting, you know, pre-capitalist era, basically, he said basically the Greek and the Romans felt that freedom only worked for the elite, right? Mm-hmm. That some people were mm-hmm. just born to be slaves and the pre-capitalist system was, was um, you know, founded on military conquest. You know, the idea that, well, we'll just take over the resources and the gold and the silver <laughs> from other peoples, other lands, and and how opposed the pre-capitalist era was to innovation. This was mm. something that we talked to Deirdre McClowski about, but that that word was actually really bad. I mean, you, you read all these stories about, you know, the king beheading a new inventor or something uh, because it would upset the status quo of how they right. made something or whatever. And, and he kind of talks about that in this essay, and I really appreciated that because it just tied in so well with what uh, Deirdre McClowski's argument is. And I, I love also from this essay... He's got a great, I think this is a great line. He says, if any of the socialist chiefs had tried to earn his living by selling hot dogs, he would have learned something about the sovereignty of consumers. <laughs> right. And that what he ta- is that what he talks to about what would have Marx done without his patron, the manufacturer? Angels, yes. Right. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Everybody but, but, needs the supply side. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You know, and and what I th- what I think is interesting is that he, you know, he he then goes on to say that the the the, the and, and it's funny you brought up McClowski. I, I I read an interesting or watched an interesting um, video that she did for Learn Liberty, I think, this week. And one of the things, and I've heard her say this before, but it was it was ju- it just really hit me uh, mostly because I'm you know was reading this Mises stuff. But she said, you know, Marx was the greatest philosopher of the 19th century right he says unfortunately he got everything wrong wrong. (laughs) i saw that same video yeah it was deirdre explaining marxism in two minutes or something yeah Yeah. Yeah. and Uh, and and the insight is and and she makes this point too and i think it's it's important is that what marx missed is that the workers were only workers he did he missed the fact that they were also customers yeah yeah and and that is that in its in itself that little nutshell, right? And I highlighted this. It's not it's not even a sentence. It's it's just a it's it's a phrase in a sentence. And I think that was, I was like, wow, that is that is really the key insight into this is that not only are workers workers, but they're also customers. And until 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 you get your mind around that, you're lost. You're lost in the system. You're lost in a system you don't understand. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Mises does such a great job with putting forth the idea of consumer sovereignty that businesses are there to to serve you know others and that's the only way they can succeed i mean it's the point that gilder makes with you know profit being an index of altruism and all that but you know i've got a quote from him in human action where he says neither the entrepreneurs nor the farmers nor the capitalists determine what has to be produced the consumers do that mm-hmm. right uh, they determine pr- precisely what should be produced and what qu- quality and in what quantities. They are merciless, egoistic bosses, full of whims and fancies, changeables and unpredictable. They do not care a whit for past merit and vested interests. And, you know, he said that's what determines people's income is how well they service others. And in his case, the masses. Yep. Um, and that was a really good point. The other thing interesting, Ed, I wanted to get your take on this. I'm sure you picked this up. I bet you it's on your list, too. This this uh-huh. quote that I found very interesting in this essay, Liberty and Property. Uh, government is a necessary institution, he says, 
the means mm-hmm. to make the social system of cooperation work smoothly. Government is not a necessary evil. It is not an evil, but a means, the only means available to make peaceful human coexistence possible. But it's the opposite of liberty. It is beating, yes. imprisoning, hanging. I mean, he's still, <laughs> you know, by armed guards or whatever he says, armed yeah. constables, I think. Um, but kind of interesting. Right, that he he doesn't he doesn't come out and call it an evil per se. Right, right. But he does. But he does call it, or he says, and this is the quote: "Government is essentially the negation of liberty," which right. I thought was was really that government government is not as some people. That's what he said. It, it means it's, and the I like that. I like liberty. that. It's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. The, the opposite of that. So that's good. But the, you know, I, I thought that toward the end, he he, what was what I was reminded of is that. You know, Bernie Sanders needs to read this, right? This is, this is no, really, because this is this is the this is the part that that Sanders and the other burners miss is is the fact that 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 the workers are also customers, and and that's essentially their their blind spot to it, to not seeing that piece at all. It, it it is, Ed, and he takes it a step farther than just the the workers being the customers, the workers through their savings, and this is certainly true in the post World War II period. Um, are actually the owners of capital, too. Yep. Right. So, they, so he said. Now the workers are the, actually the exploiters mm-hmm. <laughs> under right. Marxist Marxist uh, doctrine. And uh, Dr- Drucker made the same point in his book Post Capitalist Society. You know, talking about the the pensions of the workers and you know how much wealth is now in there, and they're investing their that capital into businesses. So now they're you know they're owners as well as workers. Right. Right. And if you think if you think a particular industry has an unfair advantage under, you know, President Trump, well, invest. Absolutely. I have to tell you this funny story before we move on to the next essay uh, at the Mount Perelin Society. And uh, I think it was 1953 meeting. Uh, mm-hmm. Melton Friedman chaired a session and they were talking about income distribution policies. So I kind of, I tried to figure out Ed, what that would be like. And I guess it would be very similar to the show that you and I did on universal basic income, right? right? right. Here we are talking about it or Charles Murray, right? A, a dedicated right. libertarian saying, oh, we should do this. So they were probably talking about Friedman's negative income tax or, mm-hmm. you know, ideas like that. And during the discussion, Mises just was so frustrated and just so done with these guys. He stood up and he announced, you're all a bunch of socialists. And he stomped out. (laughs) Now, you got guys like Melton Friedman and George Stigler and Friedrich Hayek. I mean, these guys are the furthest things in the world from a socialist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and he wouldn't relent. He didn't apologize. (laughs) I just love that. You could just picture him doing that. Yeah, that was yeah, funny. and that continues to happen in libertarian circles. By the way, it's he's he I mean, he may have been the first, but he's not the last. You know, there's there are lots of libertarian meetings where you know some somebody will stand up in the middle and say, "You're all a bunch of statists. That's what you are." <laughs> It's, it's like the joke that uh, that Rory said, you know, that when we're doing a presentation or something, there's that one lone Austrian in the back saying, oh, Mises figured this out 100 years ago. <laughs> I think yeah. I'm turning into that guy, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we both are. We both are. <laughs> but the other yeah. interesting thing, Ed, is, and, and this was really interesting, and this is not in the book uh, from FEE, okay. but he did support. While he was at Vienna Chamber of Commerce, 
he did support the use of limited trade retaliation against countries that raised their import taxes. Now, his purpose was very strategic and surgical. He wanted to nudge them back to free trade, but he thought it was a useful tool. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be really interesting because obviously in a lot of other places, he talks about the horror of protectionism and tariffs and all of that. Um, but when it came to limited trade retaliation, uh, he was okay with that. Well, that would make sense because, I mean, he, one of the things he rails on later in, I think, another essay that we, we probably won't get to is considering we're halfway through the show already. But uh, he, he, he rails against not, not looking at holistically. But there, and he certainly says, he says, yes, temporary measures can work temporarily. There's no question about it. Right. Right. So I, I, I could see him supporting that then. I it just as I read that, I just thought, oh boy, you know, some Trump supporter, uh, probably Peter Navarro, one of his economists, is going to pick up on that line and say, "See, even even von Mises thought this." <laughs> yeah. Well, well, well. All right, Ron. Well, we're flying through this show already halfway through. We want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me at asktsoe at verisage dot com. Also at Ask TSOE and hashtag Ask TSOE on Twitter. So please do that. Also, please, 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 it is the currency of what it is we do. Go out and review our show on iTunes. And you can find the iTunes page easily by going to thesoulofenterprise.com slash iTunes. That'll take you immediately to the iTunes page where it would really benefit us if you could rate and write a review of the podcast. But right now, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor. future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6. 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You 
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're doing Memorable Mentors with uh, Ludwig von Mises. And Ed, the uh, second essay, which was also a Mount uh, Pellerin uh, Society talk that he gave in September of 1951, is called Profit and Loss. And I have to say, I really like this one. I really did, too. And I, I, I had not read any of this. So this was all brand new to me. And, man, there's a lot of things that jumped out uh, here. So, some of it we had thought about, and, and certainly our, our friend George Gilder, who's been on the show, talks about profit being an index of altruism and you can see a lot of the roots in that idea in this essay but uh but but there were some things in here that that i don't think either i missed when i read gilder or gilder doesn't touch on about the nature of profit and i thought it was pretty good but what what jumped out at you i i really liked how he talked about bureaucratic management is the only alternative where there's no profit and loss mm-hmm. I, I really liked that and and that capital does not beget profit, as Marx thought. It's yep. the entrepreneurial decision, mental acts, a product of the mind. He called it a spiritual and intellectual phenomenon. Now, mm-hmm. we always like to say, you know, profits come from risk, mm-hmm. right? But, I mean, and, and obviously that's part of what the entrepreneur is doing in the mental act. He's forecasting the future, trying to create the future, really, not forecast it, but create it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a fine point, but you know it's it's really funny because he contrasts that to how Lenin viewed um, the world, you know, and he just thought that oh well, factory production, you know, a monkey can do that once you get the systems in place. Then, you know, it's just a matter of bookkeeping, and as long as you know how to add and subtract and divide, multiply, uh, it's no problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. I I read I read that and it was it was absolutely damning. I mean it's uh, it's it's too long to read on the show, but I did highlight that whole section, <laughs> that yep. whole section. I've got yeah. that in one of my books. That blew me away when I when I read that from Lenin. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like wow. And and then uh, and I know you picked up on this quote too because I saw it in your Facebook feed. But uh, where he says taxing profit is tantamount to taxing success uh, of those best serving the public. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. And boy, if if you do, if you're not friends with me on Facebook, connect with me and sc- scroll through my feed. There was a fantastic conversation between a couple of, of uh, friends of mine um, and, and and one just who who is a government economist himself. Man, he was not happy with this quote at all. <laughs> but, and I and I did say at a certain point, I was like, well, you know, his his salary does depend on his believing this has to be true. So, <laughs> but, but the, you know, the, the thing that I picked up on that same profit is a product of the mind too. I thought that was great. But the other thing that, that, that really jumped out at me was this, this uh, line is that profits are never normal. Right. Right. They appear only when there is a maladjustment, a divergence between actual production and production as it should be in order to utilize the available material and mental resources for the best possible satisfaction of the wishes of the public. Right. Uh, There there are there. They are the prize for those who remove the maladjustment. And I thought that that was really an interesting way to put it as well. And further damning evidence of why you don't need the freaking timesheet 
right? right. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> how do we always come back to that? <laughs> I know. I just you know when everything's when it, when all you have is a hammer, everything's I, a nail. I, 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 suppose, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, Ed, but this is one of Gilder's criticisms of the Austrian view of the entrepreneur that they're seen as price arbiters. You know that they're just looking for maladjustments in the market between prices. He rejects that. I tend to side with Gilder on that, but a point well taken about you know, what the entrepreneur's role is. Um, what, what I think Gilder does say and agrees with, uh, w- would agree with Mises on, because we talked to Gilder about this. I remember I asked him a question. He said, mm-hmm. uh, Mises said, writes, one of the main functions of profit is to shift capital to those who are who best can deploy it to satisfy the mm-hmm. public. And, and right. you know, Gilder says the same thing. He, he, calls, he calls Bill Gates' wealth of Microsoft a mass, <laughs> that he's tied to, you know, because now he's he's got to constantly plow back in that capital to to grow his business. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, it's a never ending process. So, uh, I, I, that was another one. The other thing in this essay that really, I never thought about this before, and I thought this was an excellent point. He was talking about why is anyone better able to expropriate assets than anyone else? So if you've got immigrants. You know, say they come from other countries to the U.S. They build a business like like uh, you know, who was the the steel cut uh, tycoon uh, Carnegie, right? Didn't he mm-hmm. come from Scotland? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Why can't the native Scotlands expropriate his assets or his wealth and redistribute it back in Scotland? Why, mm-hmm. why is it just our poor? I mean, I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. You know, obviously Mises being an immigrant probably had something to do with that thinking, but I, I just thought that was really interesting point. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, and of course, this last thing, and we should move on to the next essay so we can get through a, a couple of these things. But but he, he really t- takes on the point that people say, you know, but to say capitalism creates poverty, he says, you know, they, they, they say, look at India and China. And you're like, what? <laughs> because neither India, India nor China had ever established capitalism. Their poverty is a result of the absence of capitalism. Boy, the last 50 years have certainly proven him right on that. Well, absolutely. And he says in the only place wealth exists is where there's wealthy entrepreneurs. You know, mm-hmm. Jack Kemp used to say, you know, you can't, you can't love employees but hate employers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yep. yeah, I thought that was a really good, uh, really good essay. So, um but then the next, uh, the fourth essay in this, uh, is that where you wanted to go? The middle of the road? Yeah, yeah. the middle uh, of the road policy leads to socialism. <laughs> That's the Because he of talks it. about this in the second one as well, where he talks about, you know, there is no third system. The, the choice right. between, the, the, it's a choice between capitalism and socialism. And all a third system is, is socialism mm-hmm. on the installment plan, yeah. which, I, which <laughs> I think is a great line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is where he was pretty inflexible about this and where I say, well, I, you know, kind of agree with him on on this, you know, and, and, and you know, he, he uh, I think he does a great job in here. And one of the things that that he, I, and I did not realize this, but he says it's noteworthy to remember that British socialism was not an achievement of Mr. Attlee's labor government, but of the war cabinet of Mr. Winston Churchill. What the yeah. Labor Party did was not the establishment of socialism in a free country, but the retaining of socialism as it had developed during the war and in the post-war period. All right. And he lays the same thing on FDR with the New Deal and, you know, the National Institute Recovery Act or whatever, Industrial Recovery Act of 33, the one that was held unconstitutional. Um, 
he spent some time in the CSA condemning price controls and you know minimum wages and farm supports and subsidies and things like that. I love how he talks about if you know government always you know they want to lower the price of necessities. I think he talks about the Hindenburg plan in Germany, you know the the general von Hindenburg or whatever, and. Uh, you know, they're trying to lower the price of, say, milk, and then, you know, then obviously you lower the price and you create a shortage. But but he also looked at the other goods that go into produce milk. And then so you have to start rigging those prices as well. That's right. And, and, yep. and then the whole thing just, just, you know, you create all these unintended consequences. You're better off just having the government buy the milk at market prices and give it out to people rather than trying to control the actual price. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, the, the other thing that I learned from this essay, Ron, and I wonder if you if you caught this as well, but the the difference in Marx and Engels in their their two books, right? The first Communist Manifesto, and then Das Kapital, right? Right. And I thought that this was a just an absolutely brilliant insight. He says that you know in their in their first one, Communist Manifesto, they 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 do talk about potentially that you know you've got you've got to just eliminate uh, capitalism, right? That that's yep. the only way to do it, right? Yeah. But in their in, in Das Kapital, which I did not realize, he says they saw things in a different way. They said, and he this is the quote from from. Uh, from Das Kapital, socialism is, socialism is bound to come, quote, with the inexorable law of nature, but it cannot appear before capitalism has reached its full maturity. So I think I'm starting to agree with Karl Marx a little bit on this, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and they actually even complained about policies that were put in place uh, the, 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 for, you know, the Marxists did because this is at, well after Marx was dead. But the, the communists branded the American New Deal as a revolutionary plot to to de- that was detrimental because it it kept capitalism alive. Yeah, saved right. It. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was you know it was pretty interesting to say, hey, no, 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 you got to let it go unfettered. That's the best strategy. I'm like, yes, I agree with this. Let's so, and <laughs> let's try that. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty interesting. And and you know, the other thing he talks about in one of the other essays is, you know, th- that Marx never distinguished between communism and socialism, nor did yeah. he paint a picture, by the way, of what the ultimate stage of communism, you know, this perfect utopia would look like. But and, and Lenin, you know, obviously went with socialism. I mean, look at the name USSR. Right. Uh, it wasn't until 1928 at the Communist, Inter- uh, Communist International meeting that Stalin was the one that introduced the distinction between uh, communism and socialism. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, Interesting. That, 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 that was the history of that. He's really good on the history of, of hmm. some of these economic ideas and where they come from. And, and, and he shattered some, some common misperceptions, too some of right. these ideas, so I really appreciate that. I, I really do like his political and historical writing, um, you know, almost as much as I like his economic writing. Yeah, yeah. So just to conclude on this, because I thought this this quote really summed up what I was trying to say earlier, I said, it is par- paradoxical indeed that the document in which Marx endorsed the policies of the present day self-styled anti-communists is called the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> 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 that, that was <laughs> like, there you go. <laughs> That's excellent. Wow. Well, um, I think we should probably take the break here, Ron. So why don't you yeah, take why don't us we out? Do that? 
All right, great. Uh, so, folks, if you want to get a hold of Ed or myself, you can do so. Send us an email at asktsoe verisage.com. Let us know what you think about uh, some of these memorable mentor shows. I know we're uh, throwing some heavy economists at you, but we think they're really worthwhile. And certainly we will post full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers. Your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well, welcome back everybody we're here doing ludwig von mises uh, the great austrian economist probably the greatest austrian economist dad of the uh, the 20th century you know he did forecast the great depression um, it was several years out, but that also helped put mm-hmm. him on the map. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But uh, there's an economist out there by the name of Gary North. You've probably read some of his stuff. He's got a fat theory. Uh, I'm sorry, a fat book theory. He says producing a revolution requires a fat book. And he points <laughs> to Adam Smith. You know, 1,100 pages is his uh, wealth of nations. Karl Marx, obviously, Das Kapital, in three volumes. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter, 1,260 pages. Murray Rothbard, Man, Economy, and States, 987 pages. Melton Friedman, The Monetary History of the U.S., 860 pages. Deirdre McClowski, I would add to that list with her trilogy, right? Bourgeois, Virtues, and Dignity. That's well over 2,000 pages probably. And Mises, of course, with Human Action, um, which is 907 pages. Um, What do you think of that? And you think about Thomas Piketty too. Well, yeah. Well, let me let me add one to the list, and that would be the Professional's Guide to Value Pricing, Fifth Edition, Ronald J. Baker, six hundred and twenty-six pages. So, oh yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that's so that, that that's that's a Ken joke for you. It is, yeah. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, it, it, you so know, it's, it's, it's yeah, like, you're not going to do it. You know, I maybe, maybe. You know, you know, because I I, I look at at uh, you know pamphleteers of the American Revolution and think, you know, t- Thomas Paine did did it in a pamphlet for common sense. That was pretty good. But I see uh, the point. I see the no, point. no, no. You're right. And in fact, uh, Mark Skousen calls this the labor theory of value. <laughs> <laughs> because if you look at the Communist Manifesto, probably second to the Bible. In terms of its influence, there you know it would be top five, probably mm-hmm. sixty-two. Oh, pages. sure. And the four Gospels of the Bible are only one hundred seventy-seven pages, so the- theory probably doesn't hold up. But it was pretty interesting. I, I did read Human Action back in two thousand and twelve, and one of the things he spends a lot of time on is that you know Mises built his system on logic and self-evident assumptions, mm-hmm. similar to like geometry. He rejected econometrics and mathematics. He says there was no such thing as quantitative um, economics. And, of course, he dubbed, he dubbed a lot of new words, too, like catalactics, uh, which was kind of the, the price mechanism, but also praxeology, which was the study of human action. And, right. and then economics was the study of human action under conditions of scarcity. Mm-hmm. And what he said about human action, Ed, and especially praxeology, he said, the field of our science is human action, not the psychological events which result in an action. It is precisely this which distinguishes the general theory of human action, praxeology, from psychology. So he was not preoccupied with psychology. He was preoccupied with human action. Right. Right. How do, how do humans act? Forget about what the, what, why. It doesn't matter. It's like, how do they act? Right. And I, I think the the other thing that I get from this essay, there's a there's a lot of good stuff in this essay. But one one of the things I got was is that he he really just had disdain for any particular type of economics. There's you know he says at some point there's no there's no such thing as you know agricultural economics. There's no such yep. thing as labor economics. I love it. You you, you 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 can't you can't you you have to think of this thing in total, not into different special branches. He says economics does not allow any breaking up into special branches. That's the quote. And I think it's the same thing with ethics. That's why I reject the notion of business ethics or medical ethics or legal ethics counting, you know, I mean, and Drucker made this point in a famous essay. Uh, and, and I think um, this goes kind of goes back to Mises point about, you know, economics being holistic and it's, it's a coherent uh, explanatory science. Right, mm-hmm. it, you can't you can't break it apart, and I totally agree with that. Um, I also love Ed. What my favorite line in this essay, the last mm-hmm. essay in this little book, was he called "present day universities are by and large the nurseries of socialism." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought that yeah. was a great line. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> But but well, let me let me back up a little bit. So we've got a little bit of time left because I think one of the things that I think that that really struck me earlier in this essay, we we jumped right to the end, but earlier was that 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 his his damning of economics as as a science at all, right? 
And I, I thought this line was particularly in, interesting. He said, the foundation of institutions for cancer research can possibly contribute to the discovery of methods for fighting and prevent pre, pre, and preventing this pernicious disease. But And this is, the, this is the quote I really like. But a business cycle research institute is of no help in endeavors to avoid the recurrence <laughs> of depressions. The most exact and reliable assemblage of all of the data concerning economic depressions of the past is of little use for our knowledge in this field. So scholars do not disagree with this regard to this data. They disagree with regard to the theorems to be resorted to in their interpretation. And then he gets to he talks about something that I think Thomas Sowell uh, brought brought up uh, with us as well. In, in that um, you, you the, the the data that's collected by the historian right is yep. uh, the, the, the historian does not does not report all the facts, but only those which he considers relevant on the ground of his theories. So what happens with economics is the only data that's captured by the previous generation is the data that they consider to be relevant. And having not lived through the time of, you know, you know, maybe now, I suppose we, we could collect so much data, right? But all, all of the study of, of the, of the data that we have right now would be meaningless if we were trying to figure out, well, how does this apply? You know, if we compare what's happening now to what happened in 1986 or what happened in, in 1929 or what happened in 18, you know, 97 or whatever, when the, you know, those panics happen is that none of they would be meaningless because the data is lost. Yep. You know, in Human Action, he, he writes, if a statistician determines the rise of 10% in the supply of potatoes in Atlanta, so the definite time was followed by a fall of 8% in the price, he does not establish anything about what happened or may happen. Um, he says, he has not measured the elasticity of demand of potatoes. He has established a unique and individual historical fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, no yep. economist trained in econometrics is going to like that. No, but uh, you know, I I have a lot of sympathy for it. I would love to get Russ Roberts on our show and ask him just to pepper him with questions about von Mises. I th- I think Russ Russ in his time is is moving more and more toward the camp of hey, listen, this is not a science. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and Russ, of course, is a big fan of Adam Smith, and Adam Smith got a lot of things wrong, but we can deal with that on a future show. One other thing I wanted to point out, Ed, and I just thought this was really good. Mises also points out the weakness of classical economists because they focused on the cost of production rather than the utility to the customer. Now, you've yep. already brought up his, his ideas of consumer sovereignty and how it's the consumer that determines what's produced and how much of it and the income of the barber and the accountant and the musician and all of that. But here's what he writes about the classical economists. He says, because... They were able to explain only the action of businessmen and were helpless in the face of everything that went beyond it. Their thinking was oriented toward bookkeeping, the supreme expression of the rationality of the businessman, but not that of the consumer. The same argument we have with the theory of value. Mm -hmm. We look at it Mm -hmm. from the inside, our costs, our efforts, our time, blah, blah, our profit wishes, and we don't take into account the customer. And Mises really brought that into full force, and he really flushed that out uh, from the theory of value, uh, probably even a little bit better than Carl Menger, who was one of the original developers of the theory mm-hmm. of value. Yep. I really appreciated about that. 
about him. And, and the last thing I want to just just bring this back to what you know what does this stuff mean? And and, and you know, the, the, those of you who who have dared listen through fifty six minutes of the show here. Um, for for me in business, and I just want this last quote here. He talks about business forecasting, by which I think he means budgeting, right? We would call it today in North Parlance budgeting. He says, right. it fails in vain attempts to make uncertainty of the future disappear and to deprive entrepreneurship of its inherent speculative character. And that's the fact that, that that's just it. We, we're all speculating, we're all speculating. One of the 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 um, the, the accountants in in that I, w- I was doing a cash flow report for somebody, and he called it the perfect thing. He says, "Reality multiplied by dreams." By dream. <laughs> that is so good. That, that's as good as uh, Jules Goddard. What did he call it? Rain dancing. Corporate rain dancing. Corporate yep. rain dancing. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I love it. Well, this was this was great fun, Ed. I know we're going to be doing another one of these foundation for economic education books. Uh, do you know which one's next up? Next? I think Hayek is Hayek. up next sometime okay. in March, so about a month okay. from now. But uh, what do we got next week, Ron? Well, next week, Ed, we're going to ask a very important question. We're going to take a look at personality profiles. Are they useful or are they modern day phrenology? <laughs> Helpful or hokum? That's where we'll. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, We'll be talking about personality profiles. Are they helpful or are they hokum? And in the meantime, feel free to visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will post full show notes on our discussion today of Ludwig von Mises. And also, if you want to contact Ed or myself, please do so at asktsoe at barisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. 